This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is Bob Solter joined by Courtney White. I've been looking forward to this discussion for some time. Uh, Courtney is the author of Grass Soil Hope. He's a former archaeologist and Sierra Club activist. He uh, dropped out of the conflict industry back in uh, 1997 to co-found the Kivira Coalition. We'll talk with him about the coalition and talk with about him about this uh, book, too. His writing has been in numerous uh, publications, including Farming, Acres Magazine, Rangelands, Natural Resources Journal, and Solutions. And uh, he is joining us by phone on our program today. I'm very pleased to have him join us. Uh, from his home in the state of uh, New Mexico. Courtney, good morning. Welcome to our program. Thanks, Bob, very much for having me on. Nice to uh, have you join us. The Kivira Coalition, what exactly is that? Well, uh, the quick answer is we're a nonprofit uh, based here in in Santa Fe. We're about uh, 16 years old. Uh, I started it with a rancher and another conservationist uh, in 1997, back when there were a lot of range wars going on out here between ranchers and environmentalists. I came out of the Sierra Club uh, here locally. I was sort of disheartened by all this conflict, particularly between ranchers and environmentalists, uh, who I thought had more in common than indifference, if you really sort of dug down to the core issues. And I met a rancher, who, Jim Winder, who was doing things differently. He, just, he had a different attitude towards environmentalists. He had a different attitude towards the government, very positive and constructive. And he also was managing his ranch differently. He just had a whole different way he was moving his cows around. Uh, he had wildlife on the ranch and water and all these kind of new ideas. And he and I started talking, and we decided that, these, that this range war between ranchers and environmentalists was hurting everybody, that uh, let's call some time out. So we created a nonprofit. Uh, Kivira is an old Spanish colonial word on their maps that meant unknown territory. The Spanish wrote it down if they didn't know what was beyond their borders. And I thought, well, we're heading off into unknown territory, trying to get ranchers and environmentalists to work together. And so we picked the name Kivira, we started a nonprofit, and 16 years later, things have gone well. And when you talk about the way in which, you know, the coalition, the nonprofit has grown, what has that been like for you? I mean, what has that meant for you? <laughs> it's been a, a really interesting journey. I'm a, I'm a boy who grew up, grew up in the suburbs of Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, back in the heyday of oh, disco and uh, <laughs> air conditioning and malls, and uh, to think I'd be involved uh, with ranching and environmental restoration, which is what we do too, local food, all those kinds of things. Uh, I ended up being becoming a member of the New Mexico Cattle Growers Association, of all things. And uh, it was, it's been a, a very interesting, fascinating, and rewarding journey for all these years. 
um, which I describe in the book to some degree, because that's how I ended up going into carbon country, as I, as I mentioned. It, uh, we, we, as an organization, we ended up uh, running a ranch. Uh, it was a very interesting experience. It was a public lands ranch. About, about half the American West is publicly owned. Had lots of uh, permits, and that was a very interesting experience for us. I ended up uh, getting involved in grass-fed, local grass-fed uh, beef production off our ranch and ended up becoming a delegate to the slow food gathering in Italy as a consequence. And that was that was a trip for a boy from the suburbs to end up going to the slow food gathering as a food provider. <laughs> so it's uh, it's been educational. It's been fascinating. It's been wonderful on a lot of levels. The work with Kivira today uh, has taken you obviously into many different areas as you're mentioning where do you see the coalition's work heading well that's yeah that's a good question um so uh, we started a, a ranch apprenticeship program a couple of years ago this was to put young people on uh, ranches progressively managed ranches for year-long apprenticeships and that's that's been a really good development for us uh, lots and lots of people apply for these a few positions, and so we're trying to ramp up that program, trying to get more opportunities for young folks who want to go into food systems or into food production, into ranching or farming. And that's that's become a pretty big part of what Kivira does now. Um, and to kind of walk the talk of the next generation, I passed the baton off to a young person, Avery Anderson, who now runs the organization, uh, a next generation of leadership coming on, uh, which has it's worked out wonderfully. And as a consequence, I get to write books, <laughs> <laughs> which is something that um, I like to do. And uh, and it all kind of flowed together very nicely. So the organization is going to keep going, you know, keep keep on with its work. We've done a lot of environmental restoration projects around the Southwest. That's going to continue. And we're going to continue to look for opportunities for young folks to get involved in these these systems and these, these questions that are kind of facing us. This book, Grass, Soil, Hope, what was the experience like doing this? Well, this so it all started in 2009 uh, when I opened a publication by the World Watch Institute called Mitigating Climate Change with Food and Land Use, which is kind of a boring title, but it's, <laughs> uh, you know... Well, you know, I thought, what is this about? And I opened up, I opened it up. You know, in our work, we hadn't thought a lot about kind of the climate issues, <laughs> those kinds of things. We were working with ranchers. We were working on food and water, uh, land stewardship kinds of questions. So I opened up this publication, and in it, it says that you can sequester carbon, carbon dioxide in soils through photosynthesis and plants and affect the climate question through all these practices. And I went down the list, and the Kavira Coalition was doing two-thirds of them already. I didn't even, didn't even think about it. It was protecting natural landscapes, um, progressive cattle management, uh, building soil, rest- restoring degraded creeks. Uh, these are the things that, kind of, that built up soil carbon. And, and carbon, if you're anybody who's listening as a gardener, you know what, you know what soil carbon is. It's mm-hmm. uh, dark, rich soil in your garden. And that's mostly carbon. And plants put it down there for free <laughs> by pulling it out of the atmosphere through CO2. Well, this was all news to me. I, you know, I, I, I didn't think about the kind of the photosynthetic 
photosynthesis issues, connections to our work, to climate. As I read this publication, I said, wow, this is really interesting. And I ended up organizing, we have an annual conference in November, I ended up organizing and in 2010, a conference we called the Carbon Ranch. You know, how can ranches, soils, grasslands help? Um, and we had kind of a who's who of uh, the carbon, kind of the carbon pioneers out there, scientists, farmers, ranchers, and it went really well. We got a big crowd, a lot of folks were interested, a little bit controversial, um, even in 2010 in terms of the climate connection. Um, and I got fired up and decided I was going to go explore this country, <laughs> this carbon country. Um, and that's how the book came about, was I, I, I kind of went through the list of who's doing what and paid them all visits and, and put the book together and feeling very hopeful about the carbon part of the climate question. It's just a part. It's not the answer. It's not a silver bullet, but certainly potentially a, a big part. The conference that takes place, you say, an annual conference in November. November. What's that like? Oh, it's yeah. So when we started, uh, when we started Kivira, um, we're trying to create this sort of common ground between ranchers, environmentalists, and others. Uh, we decided early a good way to do that was to start a conference, kind of a neutral place for everybody to feel comfortable to come to. It's grown and grown over the years. Uh, it's now in its thirteenth year, I think, this or fourteenth year this fall. Uh, about for 500 folks come, which is big for New Mexico. And it's a real cross-section. We call it the Radical Center. Lots of, lots of progressive uh, farmers and ranchers, lots of conservationists, local folks. Um, we try to do a theme every year um, and uh, kind of build a conference around that theme. And one year it was carbon. Another year it's been how to feed oh, 9 billion people by 2050. We've done adaptation. We've done building the urban-rural divide, bridging the urban-rural divide, all kinds of good good stuff. And it's been a it's kind of a go-to event now for uh, folks in the West uh, to try to find new ideas, meet uh, like-minded folks in the Radical Center. Uh, and what's neat is that we're not political um, at all. We don't do any lawsuits either. So it's, it's, it's a grassroots effort on a lot of levels, which is why the kind of the carbon connection was so neat, because that's fundamentally all about grass and roots. Mm. When you were doing this book, did you at all, maybe in your mind's eye, picture who would be reading the book? In other words, who are you doing it for? <laughs> right. Well, uh, yeah, as I say in the, in the prologue, that when I, I sat down one day and I thought, I tried to think of every regenerative, progressive, um, land management, innovative land management thing I could think of, from food to water to um, gardens to art to everything. And I, so I ended up putting it on a map, and a friend of mine who's an artist ended up drawing it. And so we, put, we created this kind of map, which is partly on the cover of the book. And in the, in the prologue, I said, everybody is on this map, everybody, whether you live in a city, you live in the country, if you eat food, where, the, where does the food come from, if you're a student, if you're an artist, if you're a rancher, everybody has a role here. Uh, some roles are bigger than others. Some practices affect more land and carbon than others, but everybody, everybody's connected, and that's because carbon is the connection. It's, it's in everything that we do. It's in the air, it's in the soil, it's in the plants and animals that we eat and we watch and admire. Uh, it's at all these different levels, and so um, there's no kind of outside 
here. It's all we're all kind of part of one big carbon family. So I wrote the book with that audience in mind, meaning everybody, um, everybody who's interested in these issues. And so there's rooftop farming in New York City. There is ranchers out west. There's farmers in Australia. There's um, restorationists in uh, New Orleans. There's um, farmers in New Hampshire, kind of covering the whole idea of how do we look at this landscape differently? How do we get new ideas on the ground? And everybody has a role to play to some degree or another. Mm. Courtney is the author of Grass, Soil, Hope, and is um, talking with us by phone. When we talk about this idea of um, the kind of challenges that humanity is facing, one of the areas that always comes up in discussion is this idea of climate change. Right. When I say those two words to you, what comes to mind? <laughs> well, where I live, hotter and drier. Mm. Uh, I, live in, I live in New Mexico. Uh, we live at 7,000 feet, and, uh, and the, the, the changes are underway. Uh, it's, in fact, I had a story in the paper last week that we've warmed here in New Mexico three and a half degrees since 1984 um, Fahrenheit, and um, and I'd say we we feel it, we see it, we feel it. It's, it is hotter and drier uh, slowly, you know. It, but, but it's you know we're we're starting to fret about kind of our water conditions here, rising temperatures. Um, you know what's causing it. Um, it's fairly clear, but still somewhat controversial. I don't worry about that so much. I worry about how we're going to handle it, how we're going to deal with it, what our responses are, that kind of thing. So that when we think of climate change, we think of kind of slow change towards a sort of the higher, hotter, and drier part of the spectrum. So. And that's consistent with what the scientists are saying. Courtney White talking with us on our program on the fan this Sunday morning. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. We're in discussion with Courtney White on our program. Courtney, the author of Grass, Soil, Hope, and talking with us on our program. We're talking about uh, climate change. We touched on that topic just before we paused for our update, and it was interesting hearing you use the word hope. Well, there's two responses. One, um, as, I, as I sort of chronicle in the book, there are new hopeful ideas out there. These, these ideas are being, being put into practice at small scales right now by farmers and ranchers and scientists and other folks um, are new. They have a different way of looking at the world. They're effective. You know, we, we can see the effect. Um, and so there is hope on that level, meaning that uh, we don't have to make anything up. We don't have to wait for some big technology to come rumbling down the road. We don't have to wait for um, some huge shift in governmental policies. Uh, the toolbox for recarbonizing these landscapes uh, is, is in place, and, and that's exciting, and that's hopeful. Um, and it's a work, it's the result of a lot of hard work over a lot of years. I mean, these, these folks, some of these folks have been working on this for 30, 40 years. Um, and so when you look at kind of what some of the answers are to our problems, there are these new ideas, there are these new ways of kind of managing landscapes. So that's hopeful. The challenge, of course, there is trying to scale up, uh, make these uh, 
tools and its toolbox work at larger scales. And there, are, there are a lot of obstacles in the way, and I'm not going to sugarcoat that. Um, but you got to start somewhere. I mean, kind of start small uh, and be, be hopeful about that. The other answer is um, things seem to be shifting. Uh, I will take, for example, the kind of the ranching community, which if you go back about 10 years, the words climate change were uh, politically a no-no, uh, as, as it is among many folks out west. Um, you know, kind of a political position, largely uh, not true, not true, not true. That that's that's changed, and partly because folks are seeing it uh, in their backyard as conditions change. Uh, and I, I see the conversation has shifted in the last ten years. Uh, we see it in our conference, for example, where we kind of embraced these ideas up early, up first and got into a little bit of hot water with some folks at Power Courtney, you can't be saying those things. Um, now we don't hear those conversations quite so much. Uh, folks understand. Um, and uh, what's neat about the Radical Center is you bring folks of kind of different political persuasions together uh, to talk about land and water and food. Uh, the politics, uh, um, they, they dissolve. Uh, folks want to work together to, to do things, and that's hopeful too. And we've seen that over the years. The, the challenge, of course, and where the hope issue becomes um, more difficult is trying to figure out how to take all the stuff that's at the grassroots and, and at the margins to some degree, figure out how to kind of elbow its way into our political system and our economy in a way that you know we, we can make some larger effects. And, uh, that's more difficult, and I, I don't know quite what the answer to that is, except to look at these on-the-ground things that are happening um, say, well, here are examples, progress, hopeful progress. Uh, how, do we, how do we convince other folks, particularly our political leadership, to, to try them or give them a chance? Uh, we're right at that point right now, and I don't know the answer to that yet. Maybe two years from now we can talk again. Uh, maybe there'll be uh, good news to report. But that's, um, that's kind of a challenge. And so I'm, I'm hopeful um, up to a point, I'm hopeful about the practices and the ideas and the people, uh, be, and then we have to figure out kind of how to get over that threshold. Um, so, hopefully, that answers your hopefully that answers your question. It does answer it. The idea of you know a long term situation of sustainability for the environment. Do you have to make the argument to some people that it makes economic sense? Yeah, uh, it, it, we have to figure out how to uh, do this economically. Uh, it, there's just there's just so much you can do with different kinds of other kinds of incentive programs, like like government programs, let's say, um, or um, you know just paying folks directly out of a you know a foundation grant or something like that to to make it work. Uh, we can fund demonstration projects, uh, which is what we've been doing for a while. But how do you make it work economically? In the long run, that's that's sort of the sixty-four thousand dollar question at many levels, um, uh, and lots of obstacles in, in the way there. I mean, ranchers, for example, are um, uh, you know, economics are everything to them. I mean, beyond living on the land and enjoying it and, and raising livestock, they have to pay their bills, and so they have to figure out how this works economically. Uh, a lot of them have adopted kind of a multi-prong strategy. They do different kinds of economic activities, including grass-fed beef. A lot of them kind of add value to their meat. So they're looking at this economically. 
if we could figure out how to incentivize carbon, building soil carbon uh, economically, I think a lot of the stuff would take right off. I mean, as I said before, the toolbox is there. We know what to do. We have some small-scale examples of how the economics could work. But if if carbon, for example, uh, were economically valuable, I guess, to the country as in the soil instead of being burned and put up in the atmosphere, um, those practices are there and would take off. Um, And I sometimes think, what if we somehow figured out just to pay farmers and ranchers, pay them, to say double double the carbon in their soils, um, they would set out to do it. I mean, they they would know. And you, and you stood back and said, pick a practice. They're all good. Whatever works for you. They, and I argue this at the end of the book. Uh, they they would figure that out uh, in an economic and a, and a capitalist sense. They'd say a market sense. They'd say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick a strategy that works here. And I'm going to get paid for increasing soil carbon. And it's good for me because it increases the productivity of the land, the water, all that kind of stuff. How we get that incentivized carbon thing to happen is the question right now. And nobody's nobody's clear on that just yet. Well, does that take the leadership, if I can phrase it that way, of our elected officials and policymakers? Yeah, it does, and and uh, you know as well as I, uh, what a challenge that is. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, and also, I also want to throw in here the um, the other part of this. I, I need to say that um, you know the, the climate question, the climate issue, isn't going to be resolved with carbon, more carbon in the soils. This is a this is a good part of the what we call the mitigation of the problem, but we have to turn down the emissions of greenhouse gases. I just, I just want to make sure we're all on that. And that also takes political leadership, as we all know. Um, so, yeah, how, what kind of policies would come out of Congress or, or any administration um, to, to kind of put this to work? Well, gosh, <laughs> um, you, you know, I'm not an economist. I, I'm you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a land guy. I like I like animals and grass and soil, and so I, I'm not sure how to make. I, I know some economists have some ideas. Uh, they, they tend to involve putting some kind of um, tax on carbon at the source, you know, kind of making the pollution cost more. Maybe that maybe in in that equation is some kind of payment to landowners for sequestering that carbon in the soils. And I don't know. That's that's beyond that's beyond my expertise. Beyond my pay grade, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about this book and the importance in doing this book, what are you hoping that those who read the book are actually going to take away from it? Well, you know, first and foremost, um, we spend a lot of time uh, demonizing carbon. You know, carbon's the bad dude here. You know, we have a war on carbon. We have to, we have to have a post-carbon economy. We have, you know, carbon is just a, it's a terrible thing in the media largely because it's, you know, it's a pollutant. It's going up in the atmosphere. What do we do? What do we do? Um, part of my goal with the book was to say, no, 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 carbon is actually part of the answer here. Uh, it's the fundamental element of life. We are made of carbon. Everything around us is made of carbon. Um, life wouldn't exist without it. Uh, let's look at it in a positive way instead of simply always in a negative way. And when you look at it positively, all these opportunities kind of pop up. Uh, food, water, land management, 
uh, all kinds of things when we look at carbon through a positive lens. And that's uh, that's kind of the main objective of the book is to say that the, some of the answers to these problems are right under our noses. And it's really just a matter of attitude more than anything else. And if we have this sort of war on carbon attitude, um, we, we overlook uh, carbon as part of the answer. And that's and then the book tries to explain that, uh, you know, chapter by chapter, which uh, let's look at carbon this way, let's look at carbon that way. And when you do, really kind of cool, interesting things uh, pop up and start to happen. And when we talk about the leadership in that area of some of those cool and interesting things, the real innovation that is happening, is all of it taking place in this country? No. Um, uh, today, there's, there's globally, there's a lot going on. If you go back about five or six years, uh, it wasn't quite so much. Uh, things are actually speeding right along. Uh, Australia has been a, a key uh, place for innovation. I was really amazed to go down there and see all the different things kind of going on in Australia. I think partly it's their uh, partly their attitude. They they have kind of a um, anti-authority kind of get her get her done kind of thing among farmers and ranchers and they all kinds of scientists all kinds of stuff going on there uh, that there's stuff going on here as well uh, and Europe and other places but it's uh, it, it change is still coming from the the margin which is where innovation comes uh, largely kind of outside the system. Uh, whether it's technology or farming or something, kind of the new ideas need to start with the innovators kind of on the edges and then work its way in. And that's very much um, what's happening right now. And it's it's picking up speed. It's, it's coming more into the center. Um, uh, I'm, I'm amazed by how much soil carbon talk there is these days. There's, there's two other books that have come out. There's a bunch of other stuff happening in different places as uh, folks realize the potential of this to help with the problem. Uh, what's neat about this is that it's um, it's it's a use a cliche a win-win. You know, so you're pulling carbon dioxide down and storing in soils while you're producing food and water because uh, when you improve the soil, all kinds of cool things happen. Um, so that's in in a world that's worried about how to feed itself, where's the water coming from, um, that kind of stuff. These are these become important issues, and more and more folks are beginning to understand that. We still have some institutional barriers, um, you know, kind of big agribusiness, things like that. So, no, 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 you can't do that. Um, got to use chemicals. you got to do this. Well, we'll see how that works out kind of in the long run. Courtney White is talking with us on our program this morning. I'm Bob Solter. Courtney White is talking with us on our program on the fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. He is the author of the book Grass, Soil, Hope, and he is joining us uh, by phone from his home in the state of New Mexico. Uh, Courtney, before we pause for our update and uh, messages on the fan, Courtney, you alluded to the fact of um, ag-resources, I believe was the way that you uh, phrased it, and that's who you're, you're dealing with. Uh, when you talk about the agri-sources, how formidable are they? Well, they're huge, and uh, and, and they block a lot of stuff. I mean, I, you know, again, I'm not a 
you know, I'm not a policy person, mm-hmm. um, but the farm bill uh, is where a lot of folks tend to look look for um, the opportunity to, to get to get innovation, uh, you know, kind of in policy to take some new ideas and uh, support them, that kind of stuff. But every year, the farm bill seems to not do that. <laughs> it seems to, uh, by and large, support the large the large corporations. Um, so then, folks look around for other ways to kind of uh, figure this out. Um, the thing about soil carbon, as I say in the book, is that uh, no one's going to get fabulously wealthy uh, doing this. I mean, there's not a, you know, it doesn't reward markets that way. Um, you know, invest a little bit of money, get a lot of money back, as you would say in oil production, where, where you know you get rich fast. Um, this is different. This is soil. This is plants. This is animals and food. Uh, it's a different kind of wealth idea. It's a different kind of richness. It uh, not appeal, I think, to kind of the sort of the agri-corporate model, which wants you know large returns quickly and a lot of control. This is sort of a decentralized, farm by farm, ranch by ranch, garden by garden approach, uh, which our economy doesn't doesn't handle very well. It likes to concentrate stuff and make it big. Um, so the sort of the large operating economic model uh, in the world, uh, the sort of corporate model, uh, doesn't, I think, really know how to respond to this. Uh, not yet, anyway. Um, it, it, you know, at some point, it needs to work at, at larger scales and involve corporations um, and, and agribusiness at some level. But right now, until we understand that we aren't going to get rich uh, building soil carbon, however, it is extremely important for our future to do so, we've got to kind of make that leap over that over that uh, sort of ideology barrier that, uh, well, how do I get rich doing this? Um, you're not, but <laughs> it's extremely important that we do this, so get over it, I guess, in a <laughs> sense. Um, and, and that's hard, and that's because we have an economic model that still very much operates as if we're living in the 20th century still, unfortunately. Courtney White is the author of Grass, Soil, Hope, talking with us on our program. I want to thank you for being so kind with your time and sharing in uh, this discussion. As I mentioned, you co-founded the Kivera Coalition, which is on the web at Kivera Coalition. That's Q-U-I-V-I-R-A-C-O-A-L-I-T-I-O-N. That's all this one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you very much for joining us, Courtney. Certainly the best with uh, this book and with your work. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks Thanks much, Bob. I'm Bob Solter, and joined by Dale McGowan on our program. Uh, Dale has an interesting uh, background. He is a uh, Harvard uh, human, Humanist of the Year. Uh, he teaches parenting uh, workshops across the uh, country and serves as executive director of Foundation Beyond Belief. He's the author of two books previously. We're going to be talking about his latest book. has a very interesting title, In Faith and in Doubt, How Religious Believers and Non-Believers Can Create Strong Marriages and Loving Families. The book is published by Amacom. It's nice to have you join us on our program, first of all. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Bob. This latest book, um, what's the inspiration for it? Well, the inspiration for it was uh, the growing number of uh, people who are in these marriages, in marriages between religious believers and non-believers. And uh, the initial inspiration was actually my own marriage. Uh, Twenty-three years ago, I married a Southern Baptist, and uh, I am an atheist. So uh, right away it was a, uh, a topic of interest to me, and as I got to know more people in that situation, I realized that some resources were really needed. 
what was the experience like, or what has the experience been like in your marriage? Uh, well, uh, our situation was interesting. This is one of the reasons that I, uh, it didn't occur to me to write the book for some time. Uh, we had very little conflict. You would think that a Southern Baptist and an atheist would have nothing in common, <laughs> no basis for, uh, for building a uh, relationship. But we actually had very few issues. We found that uh, the difference between us was in beliefs, in relative abstractions, you know, what we thought was true about the universe, uh, not in values. Our values, what we thought was good, what we thought was important in life, uh, those were very much aligned from the beginning. So uh, we had relatively little uh, conflict, but I began to uh, meet more and more people who were in these situations who had different variables in play. And uh, they frequently ran into a lot of conflict. So I wanted to see what the difference was between my relatively tension-free marriage and somebody else's that, that sometimes ends in divorce. When you say they had, you know, these sort of things that were issues, what kinds of issues? Well, the issues range from, um, you know, interpersonal issues between the couple. Uh, if you have a religious partner, for example, who thinks that uh, her spouse is going to hell, that's something that's going to get in the way of the uh, of the marriage, that's, a, um, uh, that's going to be tension-inducing. If you have an atheist who thinks that a religious partner is not intelligent, uh, that's going to get in the way. Uh, dogmatic thinking, uh, a desire to convert the partner, uh, is one of the strongest tension markers that I found in these relationships. Uh, you have to go into it saying, uh, I accept you as you are. I am not in this relationship to change you uh, to be what I am. And if couples can master some of those variables and keep communication open, things tend to go much better. That idea of keeping the communication open, and I'm assuming when you say that keeping communication open means keeping the communication, you know, as full and as free as possible, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What you have to do is uh, uh, recognize that, uh, you know, you're in a relationship, uh, you're sharing a life. And uh, if there's something that's important to one of the partners to talk about, to engage in, um, then it really has to be okay to talk about that. We can't continue to push things to the, uh, uh, back into the shadows. That just builds up in a relationship in a toxic way. And when things are not, you know, put out there in that honest fashion where, you know, somebody feels comfortable enough to be able to talk about this with, you know, their life partner, uh, when that happens, I mean, it would seem that is just a prescription for conflict. Oh, it absolutely is. And this is something that even outside of the realm of religion uh, is well known in, in uh, relationship, uh, uh, among relationship experts. Uh, having open communication, having a willingness to confront things honestly, uh, to be honest about your own feelings, all of these are the things that uh, add up to a, uh, a strong relationship. And if you keep something, especially something as potentially important as religious beliefs uh, bottled up. If you keep that uh, you know, to yourself and don't talk about what the things are that, uh, that bother you in the relationship or that the things that you need uh, in the relationship along those lines, uh, that's not going to get any better. <laughs> that's not something that uh, over time is, is going to uh, typically diminish. It will usually go the other way. The idea of communication is one aspect of this. Where does, you know, basic respect. Basically, you're respecting the other person's views, um, the other person's worldview. Where does that fall in this? Well, this is an interesting uh, uh, topic. I actually think it's one of the things that uh, is kind of a breakthrough is when people realize that they can respect a person 
uh, as an individual, they can respect that person's right to hold the beliefs that they have and even the, the person's intentions in, in holding those beliefs without saying, yes, I respect the beliefs as well. I think it's perfectly fine to say, you know, that's, uh, that particular belief is something that, uh, you know, if I think that your belief is coming from a holy book, I think it, it, uh, it's problematic uh, for the definition of the word respect for me to say, I respect that way of engaging the world. But it's different to say, I don't respect you for having that belief. I don't respect you uh, for uh, making that choice. Uh, that's when it crosses over into something that's going to be toxic for the relationship. All right. Now, I've got to ask, because, you know, you mentioned being in this relationship, the marriage, for all these years. What about when children factored into this? Because some would think, well, you know, that may be a completely different situation. Oh, it is. Uh, it, it's something that... Uh, if there's one thing that causes the bells to go off uh, in relationships, it's when the kids arrive. And again, it, it doesn't even have to be in religious terms uh, that the alarms are sounding. Um, so one of the things that I found in the couples that I interviewed, I, I did a survey of nearly a 1,000 people for the book, and I interviewed 17 couples in depth, and the arrival of the kids is the, is the test. <laughs> That's what tests your uh, your situation. And for us, for my wife and I, it was no problem. We had uh, issues with a couple of um, uh, a couple of things early on, things like baptism for the kids, uh, things like uh, you know whether they would go to Sunday school, uh, and we worked those out because it turned out that uh, the things that were most important to her were negotiable for me. They were things that I could uh, um, certainly allow, like having the kids go to Sunday school, having that my kids even went to a Lutheran preschool. And um, we, they had a dedication into the church. These were all things that I said, yeah, that's, that's fine. But one of the things that was uh, important to me is that in the long run, I wanted them to be able to make up their own minds about their religious uh, perspectives and identity. And it turned out that she was perfectly fine with that. And we talked about how that would work, how we would keep our um, uh, language uh, with the kids and our approach to the kids flexible. And it worked out perfectly fine. But there are other couples. One of the couples that I interviewed had a wonderful time joking about their differences all through their engagement, all through their early marriage. And then they had a son, and everything changed. And she, uh, she was also a Baptist, uh, but she immediately became concerned for the, um, for the, uh, the child's soul. She felt that she had the responsibility to shepherd his soul uh, to Christ. And uh, her husband, obviously, you know, didn't, he was an atheist, and he didn't uh, think that. And it became something very problematic in their relationship, and they eventually got divorced. So my wife had more of a universalist approach to uh, her religious beliefs and never believed that uh, uh, belief in Christ is something that determines salvation. So here she was, a Southern Baptist, just like uh, the woman and the other couple. But uh, one approach we were able to work out perfectly well, their approach led to divorce. Mm. When, you know, you ex explain what this process has been like and, um, you know, in, in putting the book together, but also explain how your marriage has worked, for lack of a better term. What is the reaction that you get? Uh, when I when I explain that, one of the things that's uh, interesting, one of the assumptions that people make 
is that my wife wasn't really all that religious, you know, <laughs> not really. It wasn't really a Southern Baptist. Um, and uh, the interesting thing is, it was um, always such a central part of her uh, of her life. She had uh, her stepfather, her uncle, her grandfather were Baptist ministers. She went to church every Sunday. She prayed. She read a daily devotional. It was so important that when we first talked about it, uh, when we were dating, and I said, told her very nervously <laughs> what my beliefs were, uh, one of the things that she said had to be in our relationship is that she was going to go to church. And then she said, that has to be okay. And I said, of course, you know, that's, that's perfectly fine. I've known all along that this was an important thing to you, and I also want to go with you. And so we, we attended church together for many years. Um, so the, the assumption that uh, she's somehow not all that Baptist uh, falls apart. Uh, it's the reality in the United States especially that majorities in every religious denomination do not hold to all of the doctrines and dogmas of their, uh, of their faiths. And that doesn't make them less religious. That is simply a different expression, a more progressive expression of religion, and that's where my wife was. Interesting discussion. Is there a site online for um, the foundation? Yeah, yes. Foundationbeyondbelief.org has uh, information about that giving program and also our volunteer program. We also have over 100 humanist volunteer teams in communities around the United States. Dale, thank you very much for joining us. Very interesting um, things that you have shared with us in our chat today. The book, again, is entitled In Faith and in Doubt, How Religious Believers and Non-Believers Can Create Strong, Fam- Strong Marriages and Loving Families. The book is published by Amacom. Thank you, certainly. Good luck with the book and um, continued happiness in your marriage. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Another guest joins us after our Top of the Hour update. You're on The Fan. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.